We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. If you want to open your phones or Bibles, whatever you have with you, Genesis chapter 1. This year, I'm really excited about. Last May, I took a three-day kind of silence, solitude retreat. I take an extended time as a pastor every year to get away, pray, God, what are you up to in the coming year? And the thing I spent the most time on, that retreat was dreaming about, like, this moment until the end of this year. For the next year, we're going to soak ourselves in the biblical story. So every week, we're going to go through a different book of the Bible. This week is Genesis. Next week is Exodus. Next week is Leviticus. I promise I'm not going to preach for two hours through all of these books, okay? But we're just going to do a snapshot of the book, of the biblical story, I'm going to choose what I think is a key text within that story so that hopefully by the end of this year, we can be more reoriented to the true story of the world and understand our part in it. What is our part to play in here? So Eden, go ahead and throw up that quote. This is one of my favorites from N.T. Wright. If you read along with me, it just says, we read scripture in order to be refreshed in our memory and understanding of the story within which we ourselves are actors to be reminded where it has come from, where it's going to, and hence, what a British word that is, and hence what our own part within it ought to be. So that's what we're going to be doing. That's our intention over the next year. And I'm really excited. I, if you miss a week, you can go back. All of our sermons are recorded. They're on our Life and Rhythm podcast. You can find those on our website. But I hope that you'll track with us in by the end of this year, we can say we at least have some introductory understanding of this is the story in which we're a part of, like the creation story, the rebellion story, how God's going to put everything together through a family, the Israelites, how Jesus then becomes the fulfillment of what humanity is meant to be, right? He's called the second Adam in the New Testament. He's the original Adam failed. He's going to come fulfill what the original Adam was supposed to do, and then he sends the church out as his body to be a part of the restoration of all things, and that one day he's going to come back and set everything straight. He's going to make all things new. And that is our hope in the gospel. No more pain, no more tears, no more frustration, no more brokenness, no more poverty, no more kids being neglected, no more people getting divorced, no more of all the wreck that we live in. No more of that. He's going to put everything straight. And so I want you to watch this uh, short video that kind of, it's only one minute long, I promise, that describes kind of the 50 chapters in, in, in Genesis. Are you ready? Okay, it's a cartoon. Enjoy. The book of Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible, and its storyline divides into two main parts. There's chapters 1 through 11, which tell the story of God and the whole world, and then there's chapters 12 through 50, which zoom in and tell the story of God and just one man, Abraham, and then his family. And these two parts are connected by a hinge story at the beginning of chapter 12. And this design, it gives us a clue to how to understand the message of the book as a whole and how it introduces the story of the whole Bible. So the book begins with God taking the disorder and the darkness described in the second sentence of the Bible. And God brings out of it order and beauty and goodness. He makes a world where life can flourish. And God makes these creatures called humans or Adam in Hebrew. He makes them in his image. 
which has to do with their role and purpose in God's world. So the humans are made to be reflections of God's character out into the world, and they're appointed as God's representatives to rule his world on his behalf which in context means to harness all of its potential, to care for it, and make it a place where even more life can flourish. God blesses the humans. It's a key word in this book. And he gives them a garden, like a place from which they begin starting to build this new world. There you go. All right, let me read Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. Very first chapter of the Bible. And then God said... Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They'll reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, govern it, Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the animals that scurry along the ground. And then God said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth. All the fruit trees are for your food. And I have given every green plant as food as well for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and everything that has life. And that is what happened. And then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. Let me pray as we dive into this story this morning. Father, this creation story might be familiar to some of us. It might be brand new. Whatever the case, would you fill our imaginations up this morning with what kind of foundation you were trying to lay in the book of Genesis. These are foundational words, words to build a life upon. So for each person here this morning, may your Holy Spirit speak directly, personally, to them. Whatever you want them to hear, may they hear it through my words, and whatever you don't want them to hear, may my words fall to the ground. Have your way in this time. May you be pleased. May you be praised. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Genesis 1. We are often tempted in our daily lives to be a little bit, if I can offend us, I'm offending myself in this too, okay? We're often tempted to be self-centered, to view the world just through our own eyes, which is understandable because we only see the world through our own eyes. Are you with me? Yeah? It's kind of hard not to do that. We're not God. We're not able to be outside of time and space. And so for us, Genesis is that waking up, that awakening book that from the beginning reminds us that we're not the main character of the story, that we are actors within it, but we are not the main character. Genesis 1.1, it starts not by saying, in the beginning, humans did this really cool thing. It starts by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless, empty, dark, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. I heard scholars that describe that as like a mother hen over her chiclets and over her eggs, hovering over life, waiting for it to be explosively brought into reality. 
It's not about us. How much more of your life would be less anxious if you knew it didn't depend on you to keep the world going? How much more of our souls would be at peace if we knew that we could rest in there is a main character to this story. He is in charge. He is the first and the last. Like Gina read, I'm going to read this part again, even if you throw up this quote by Eugene Peterson. First, God. God is the subject of life. God's the foundation for living. If we don't have a sense of the primacy of God, we will never get it right, get life right, get our lives right. Not God at the margins, not God as an option, not God on the weekends, but God at center and circumference. God first and last, God, God, God. It reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7 when he's finishing. If you've ever read the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is just one collection of a sermon that Jesus, I'm assuming, preached often. It's the longest we have of Jesus preaching in the New Testament. So I think it's important, which, by the way, if you read it all the way through, would be about 18 minutes long, which is why I try to keep my sermons to 20 minutes, if you're wondering. And at the end of this scripture, he talks about foundational words, God first and last kind of words, Genesis-type words. He says this, and I hope this doesn't scare you, but I, I hope it makes you sober-minded in the way that you're handling your life. Jesus says, not everybody who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. That should be sobering for some of us. Only those who actually do the will of the Father in heaven. So what's it about? Is it our will or his will? Clearly, Jesus is saying, no, he comes first. His desires come first. His initiatives, his plans, his purposes. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We performed miracles in your name. And Jesus said, I will reply, but I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is like a person who builds his house on a solid rock. This is a great kid's song, if you've never heard the kid's song. Though the rain comes and the torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock, on the words of Christ, on Christ himself. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't do it is foolish. Like a person who builds his house on Sand. Has anybody ever tried to play in the sand before and build a sandcastle? How effective was that long-term? Playful, maybe, enjoyable, long-term strategy for life, probably not good. He says, when the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against that house, it's going to collapse with a mighty crash. And I think we've all experienced that at some point in time in our life. We've experienced this crash of oh, maybe my, my life wasn't built as strong on the foundation of Christ as I thought it was. And if that's you this morning, if you're thinking, I'm not in a season of life where Jesus is the foundation. I just want to be the first one to raise my hand and say, there have been many seasons of my life where I could say, that's true of me too. Where I can say, God, I want you to be the first. I want you to be the last. But if I'm honest, this thing is really the first thing in my life. When I look at my time, the way I'm spending my money, what I'm focusing on, that I'm not praising you, I'm not building my life on you. This is the foundation, if I'm honest. And if that's you this morning, hear me on this. This is really important. Don't beat yourself up about that. There is no need for you to accuse yourself of having a sand foundation. 
There's already one that will always be better at us than accusing. His name is Satan. His name literally means the accuser. That's what it means. Somebody who brings before God accusations before you. He's really good at it. You don't have to be. You just have to think back on, no, what are, what are God's intentions for me? All it takes is one moment of a mind shift for us to say, no, God, put yourself first in my heart. Like David prayed in Psalm 136, incline my heart to you. Get that image of King David, the guy who wrote like half the Psalms saying, I want you to bend my heart towards you because it's bent towards other things. Bend it back where it belongs. And I think Genesis 1, if we can dive into that a little bit, teaches us how to do that, how to cooperate with God's bending. Verse 26, then God said, let us make humans in our own image to be like us. Have you ever thought about that for yourself? This is a key concept in the biblical story that we need to get right. It is a foundational concept. Every person on earth is made in the image of God. If you were to go back and read Martin Luther King's sermons or some of the speeches he gave with marches on why there should be equality between whites and blacks, you're going to hear a lot of this, a lot of this. We're all made in the image of God, every single one of us. And so for you, some of you, you do not view yourself as a representative of how God would be if he was on earth, and I'm inviting you to consider that that is who he's created you to be. And that's kind of scary, isn't it? If somebody were to say, hey, look at, look at Troy. That's how God's supposed to be on earth. That's the image. That's the image of God on earth. It's kind of surprising to think about some religions have actual idols of their gods that they bow down to. They set them up and they bow them down in God. And the creation story is saying, no, I'm the only one that you bow down to and there's no image of me, but I'll tell you what I'm like. Look at each other. This is what I want to be like. And obviously, obviously we don't fulfill that. We fall short, right? As Romans said, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All, all of us. And that's why Jesus came to show us this is what true humanity, this is what flourishing looks like. So maybe practically, maybe you could just do a little exercise where you write, you know, in a dry erase marker on the mirror that you look in most in your house. Maybe this would be helpful. You are made in the image of God. One of the things we say to our kids all the time in our house is you don't talk about yourself that way. Kids can be really hard on themselves. Their interior voice, it doesn't stay interior very long with little kids. They say the things that they're thinking. Adults are better at hiding it. Kids just blurt it out. And my wife and I often will pull our kids aside and say, that's not true. Do you really think that that's true? No. What's true is you're made in the image of God. That's true. That's how valuable you are. And not only valuable, but important player in, in the story. It's, it's not like God just spun the world into existence and said, all right, figure it out, and stands back and says, I'm pretty good at what I just, I'm pretty good. This is good. This is very good. Figure it out. He's not a distant God. There's actually a religion devoted to that. It's called deism. It's this idea that God is removed from reality, and prayer doesn't really matter, and I don't really need to read the word of God, and I don't, I don't, I don't really play a part. All is kind of meaningless because God is far off. That's not the creation story. 
No, God is saying, I'm making you in my image, and you're my representatives, and I'm looking for, hear me on this, cooperative friends to bring creation to its fullest potential. Cooperative friends. And if you don't believe me, just read this verse again. Like, God blessed them. In verse 28, he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and govern it. The Hebrew word there is kabosh, which I'm not sure if, like, that's the same kabosh that we use, like, put a kabosh on that. I thought about that, I don't know. But govern, subdue it, rule over creation. Think about this for a second. Creation wasn't totally finished when God stood back and said, this is all very good. He put within creation the potential for that creation to be harnessed. If you think that faith and science are apart from one another, let me just challenge you and say, this story provides the basis of scientific investigation. It provides the basis that God is saying, no, I put everything into order, and now you go and experiment and have fun and figure it out. I mean, it took us thousands of years to get an iPhone, but we did it. Like, we figured it out over time, little bit by little bit. I mean, the Gutenberg Press, I know that printing isn't that cool to you. It was revolutionary. When the, when the Gutenberg Press came out, I mean, that's probably the number one invention in the last thousand years, not the iPhone. The Gutenberg Press, putting words on paper so that people could, hear me on, this is crazy, they could have Bibles for themselves. They didn't have Bibles for themselves before. That was one of the first books printed. And that's what caused a reformation not even a hundred years later. And in the beginning, God is saying, no, this is why I created you so that you could subdue the earth. Rule over it. Be my representatives. Be my cooperative friends. And this has massive implications for our daily work. It means that everything we do is meant to be with God and is sacred. Everything we do. Not only are we made in the image of God, but our work is to be done in that image for his glory and the good of all creation. So what does that look like for you? I mean, I know, like... There's a student in this, there's students in this area, there's students in this room. Your homework is to be done in a sacred way. Your marriage, the work that you're doing in your marriage is sacred. Your sexuality is sacred. Your finances are sacred. If you work in insurance, it's sacred. If you wash dishes, it's sacred. Everything we do is meant to subdue creation. I, I don't know when exactly the sacred and secular divide happened. It's pretty wide right now in our culture. This story is an invitation to bring it back together and say, no, everything you do, every mistake you make is meant to be done in the image of God for the glory of God and for the good of those around you. And I know we mess up in this. I know we're not perfect representatives. We don't do this right. God knew that. In Genesis chapter 3, he says, there's a poem, read it, it's crazy. It's a poem, back and forth, a Hebrew poem, and it says, one day there will come a man who will crush the head of evil. It will crush a serpent's head. Nobody could imagine that by that, the prophecy was describing Jesus on a cross, dying, and that's how God was going to conquer evil, by dying and then resurrecting. Nobody imagined that. That was a massive surprise. 
to everybody that was around Jesus. And in Colossians 1, let me read this to you. I know I read this not too long ago, but I think it's a huge poem that the Apostle Paul wrote that centered the church in the true story of the world. In Colossians 1, 15 to 20, he says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Hear me, did you hear that? Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. You want to know what God's like? Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read four different accounts. That's what God's like. That's what humanity was meant to be like. He existed before anything was created. He's not created. He is God. He's supreme over all creation, for through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made things we can see and can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else. He holds all creation together. Take a deep breath. That's not you. He holds all things together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He's the beginning. He's supreme over all who will rise from the dead. He's the first in everything for God in his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So for us this morning, I want to start the year out by refirming up our foundation for 2023 and hopefully beyond. That Jesus would be that reconciling foundation between us and God, between us and one another, us and our work that we do, us and our play, our hobbies even that all of it would be done on the foundation of Christ. And I know that this world can be shaky. I know that it's hard to remember that just like God looked over Jesus after his baptism and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I take great delight in this son. It's hard for us to hear that over ourselves in Christ, isn't it? It's hard to imagine God saying over us in our identity, this is my child in whom I am well pleased. Not because of anything they've done, but because of what Christ has done. He is the foundation of their life, and I am in love with that person. And in that, we can have an unshakable foundation in 2023. This last week, I got one of those horrific calls from a family member in Illinois. My little brother called me, and he said that... Uh, our Aunt Susie was passing away. And to give a little context, my Aunt Susie wasn't just like an aunt. She was a second grandma to me. There was never anything I did that she wasn't at, from a junior high awkward play to my wedding to when my kids would come back, you know, when my kids were born. A card every, I mean, every birthday for my entire life, this woman has never missed a card in her entire life. She's spent a ton of money at Hallmark, I'll tell you that. For our whole family, she's been that person. She never married. She never had kids. And right now, I just got a text from my dad saying that um, she's on her last days. I mean, she's in morphine right now, and they're just trying to keep her comf you know, comfortable as her organs shut down. And I had one coherent conversation with her last week where she had kind of one moment of clarity where she said, Matt, I'm okay. I know that God is good. I know that this, this isn't all there is. And I prayed with her over the phone. And she said, I love you. I said, I love you too. 
And there was great joy and hope because of the foundation of Christ in life and in death and beyond all things. He is the beginning and the end. And so today, we're going to take communion like we always do. And I want you to go, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to take the bread and remember that his body was broken, that he might become the foundation of your life. His blood was shed, that he might become the foundation of your life, your life, my life, the world's life. Let me pray, and then whenever you're ready, you can go take communion. Father, thank you for giving us a firm foundation, the gift of Christ, his body that was broken, his blood that was shed. Thank you for the book of Genesis, the story that tells us that there is one that this story is all about, and that's you, and you invite us to play a vital role in this story. Every single one of us was made for a purpose, by a purposeful God. May we celebrate today. As we take communion, may we not just do it somberly, but may we celebrate that you have conquered the grave. So in death or in life, you are the solid, unshakable foundation. And in you, Christ, we can hear the Father's words saying over us through the Spirit, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Thank you, God. Remind us of that as we take communion. Hey, thanks for listening to the Life and Rhythm podcast. If you'd like to know more about Rhythm Community Church, you can go online at rhythm.community. Peace.